Hello, this is Osman Parvez, and this is the House Einstein Podcast. Today, I'm here with Sophie Clore. Hi there, I'm Sophie. I'm an associate broker at House Einstein, and it's nice to be here today. All right. And today, we're going to be talking about a variety of topics, including integrity and trust in the transaction. We may also talk about some of our recent deals and our experience in the real estate business. So to kick us off, I wanted to read a section from this book that we've been talking about and reading in sort of our informal book club. And it's The 15 Commitments of Conscious Leadership by Jim Dethmer, Diana Chapman, and Kaylee Warner-Klemp. And it's just a, a brief uh, blurb where they talk about integrity. It's one of the conscious commitments. And they say that integrity is defined as facilitating wholeness and congruence. It leads to an unbroken flow of energy and life force, congruence between what is experienced and expressed and alignment with life purpose. And the four pillars of integrity are taking radical responsibility, speaking, can speaking candidly, feeling all feelings, and keeping agreements. And the following are a couple of quotes that I found relevant to this conversation. Trust men and they will be true to you. One man cannot do right in one department of life while he is occupied in doing wrong in another department. Life is one indivisible whole. Mahatma Gandhi. So this is from the 15 commitments of conscious leadership um, in regards to integrity. This is above the line and, you know, being true to yourself and living above the line. I commit to the masterful practice of integrity, including acknowledging all authentic feelings expressing the unarguable truth and keeping my agreements. Below the line is, I commit to living in incompletion by withholding my truth, denying my feelings, not keeping my agreements, and not taking 100% responsibility. Okay. So one of the things that I really wanted to talk about was how trust impacts the real estate business. And um, from my perspective, I, I visualize it as concentric circles, where the first pinpoint on the circle is uh, where the drop hits is self-integrity, self-trust, honoring commitments to self. And that's reflected in things like working out, um, putting it in my calendar and making sure I honor the time I committed to work out with myself as much as I would honor the time that I would commit to be with a client or have a dinner somewhere with, with friends. And from that initial drop, the concentric circles expand to connection with others and service in a community and service to my clients, um, service to the people that are in the real estate business, both in on our team and people that are um, colleagues across the aisle, if you will, on the other side of the negotiation, um, people that are representing um, the opposite side of the transaction, having good, clear communication with them and trust with them um, to do their jobs and do them well and do the right thing. Um, when we act, when I feel, I feel like when we act in those ways and build trust, it just continues to expand outward. And I think that beyond the level of individual transactions and individuals within companies interacting with each other, there's sort of this societal impact in our community that raises the level of performance, connection, service, and doing good things, wellness. For everyone when people conduct themselves in those ways and build and engender trust. And that's 
taken me a while to understand in my professional growth. Um, but now that I feel like I'm there, or at least this is where I'm at now, this is the evolution. I don't know where the next stage is, but it's a pretty strong departure from what I was learning in business school because we never really talked about this. We never talked about the critical nature of trust. But now I feel myself thinking about it all the time. I think it's the foundation of a healthy community too. And, and I think places the size like Boulder too really have the, you know, it's like a, it feels like a small town yet it's, it's larger. And I feel like it's sort of the perfect size to cultivate that like sort of friendly small town feel. And then trust bridges out of that. Like the fact that we can walk down the street and see a bunch of people we know. It, it all ties back to that sense of community and authenticity. Um, and I think that, that ties into real estate. You know, when you start working with a new client or we work with a lot of first time home buyers and you obviously have to be authentic and trust yourself to be able to build trust with a brand new person who's trusting you to, you know, hold their hand through this massive decision and this, this responsibility. It's sort of like the internet where it is, if, yeah. if it's so many people and you can hide behind the veil of anonymity, it encourages a breakdown in communication. People saying things that are are knowingly inappropriate and rude. It encourages people to behave like trolls, um, to fire each other up because they have no responsibility to each other or connection to each other. We're not in it together if you're all anonymous on the internet. But if we behave badly in real estate transactions, I see these people. Right. We live in this community. Yeah. <laughs> I live in this town. So um, reputational risk and uh, the benefit of having a strong reputation comes back to us too in tangible ways like where we sometimes get um, the deal in a bidding war because we are known in the community as being uh, respectful of each other and good players it's rare that um, we're dealing with inappropriate behavior sometimes we have clients that want to shortcut something and, and we have to hold the line with our clients and explain why it doesn't work well in, in that fashion um, but trust is critical. I mean, trust is critical between client and a agent and between agents. Mm -hmm. um, trust is, I mean, the contract is, is governing the relationship, but it's all about trust. And good communication. Because you can trust each other, but if you're not expressive and communicative, you know, it, it, people's needs don't get met in certain scenarios. Yeah. But that comes out of trust and being authentic. I mean, we may talk about certain scenarios on this podcast, but um, as before, we'll anonymize so we don't um, we don't comment inappropriately on personal relationships or business relationships in the community. But we've had I mean, the vast majority of our deals are fantastic, easily. Um, I feel like our circle of friends, our clients, and the number of referrals we get every year are growing uh, by leaps and bounds, and that's largely driven by having done good work. But maybe one in 20 relationships don't go that great. There could be something that was a hiccup. And often it starts with an inkling of distrust. And I'll never forget, this was early when you joined Sophie, it was like our first year, maybe second year, we had these clients and they uh, became upset with me because I was communicating to one of the two in the couple and the other felt like I was discriminating against her yeah. by communicating with uh, first with the uh, with the male in the relationship. 
And it sort of became that way because he was a, he was contacting me first with an email and a question and took the lead on the communication. So we just followed. I never, and, and they, uh, she became upset and brought it to my attention that she felt like I was excluding her. And there was, it was very difficult to recover that relationship. We did write an offer on another property. That deal broke up um, because the, and this is a good example, another good example. So this is, uh, they, they wrote a, an offer on a house in Martin Acres and the seller had written that there had never been flood damage on the seller's property disclosure. And uh, as part of our due diligence, one of the things we encourage our buyers to do is once you have it under contract, go meet the neighbors and ask about the house and ask about the neighborhood. And the neighbors will often tell you things the seller did not disclose. And in this case, the, seller, the neighbors told the, our buyers a huge uh, disclosure that not only did it have flood damage, but there were sandbags outside the house. Like it clearly had flood damage. It wasn't just, you know, a little dampness in the crawl space. This was... Uh, a, a river is how I think they described it in front of the house. And um, once our once our clients uh, learned that, we, we, we shared that, well, they, they learned it directly. Once they shared that with us, they expressed serious reservations about uh, staying in this deal because now they weren't sure what else they couldn't trust. Right. And with high-end dollar, high dollar transactions in particular, uh, if you don't trust your counterparty, you feel like they're hiding something, now you're, you don't trust anything in the transaction and you're extremely likely to break up. So they, we did break up that deal. And then shortly after we, we broke up as, um, as client uh, agents as well with them. And it was pretty clear it was because of the breakdown in trust, not just because of the lack in trust of us because of how we were communicating, but how that first deal went. And um, specifically what happened was I was leaving town and we were getting ready to write an offer on another property. And, uh, and I realized that our buyer agency had expired and that in order to, um, to represent them as buyer's agents in this transaction, we needed to have this contract updated. And it was how it was communicated or the tone of it, but they got the impression that we cared more about the buyer agency agreement than we cared about helping them buy the house, which is as far from the truth as could be. But um, I was getting on a flight or driving cross country. It was it was just bad timing, and they decided that this was a good stopping point in working with us. And I, this is starting to sound like lots of negative stories. It it isn't. I mean, thirty one deals we closed last year. We have consistent high reviews, and the vast majority of our clients are thrilled with our work. But like everything else in life, we tend to to learn from these lessons, and that's part of the reason of sharing these podcast in this podcast is sharing these stories is to. Talk about what, what did we learn and um, what could we have done better. And, and what I learned in that experience was with all couples, but particularly younger couples, it's important to ask how they want to be communicated to. And when I ask that, they usually say, no, email is fine. And I'm like, and I say, well, no, I'm not asking about email or text. I'm asking about as a couple, do you want to both be on every call? Do you want me to copy you both on an email or do you want me to direct it to one person and assume that the other person is getting communicated with? It changes. It really changes, yeah. It can, and, and my experience with older, um, older buyers and sellers are that they usually have figured out their communication stuff. So they know how they're gonna handle it and they just say, oh no, just, just send every, all, all, just communicate directly to uh, the female in the transaction. She'll, she okay. makes, and when it comes time to the contract, let's make sure we're both on the same page. But for the selection process and showings, she, she manages our schedule, right? Or he does. Um, but with the younger couples, I, uh, that's... I, and all couples now. The take-home lesson, how I change my behavior yeah. is all couples. 
I ask about um, how they would like to be communicated with, so I don't stumble over that again. And the societal gender roles that we expect are never quite the same. In some cases they are, and it's stereotypical, but each couple and duo is different, and a lot of times first-time buyers don't really know what they want, or they're, you know, the more property you look at, the, the closer they get to, you know, finding a middle ground between them two, but you can't always trust that one is communicating to the other. I think it's just best to be as inclusionary as possible yep. from the get-go. Yep. Yeah, agree and ask. Yeah. Um, early how you want to, how they would like to be communicated with and if mm. there are any particulars that you should be aware of. Um, this is years and years ago uh, when we noticed, uh, this is with my ex, but when we noticed there were um, gender imbalances in the decision-making process or some sort of communication thing going on, we would strongly encourage the other person to speak up at showings if there was something not going on because yeah. we could tell through their body language and their emotional energy that they weren't happy with this particular property. But the other one was so thrilled they were being quiet about it. Yeah. And, and that their, the communication challenge between them was going to create a, a challenge in our, yeah. our use of time. Are we writing an offer when we really shouldn't be writing an offer? Right. Are we putting it under contract only later to find out that one person's not really on board with this property? And so in some ways we get to play a little bit of therapist where we start to look at these patterns in our clients and how to help them communicate. It's not primarily what we're doing, but right. we're trying to... It's part of it. It's part yeah. of it. It's sort of a strange little part of it. Um, I, I feel like even though those, you know, 20 or one in 20 or whatever number it is that, that don't go well, or, you know, something happens along the line, some sort of hiccup, it's always a learning experience. And I think that specific deal that you're talking about was really sort of a, a wake up, not necessarily wake up, but it was, it was a good thing, I think overall, because it made us step back and say, oh, wow, how can we improve in our communication? And in our reading of people and in the development of, of the relationship as you get to know clients yeah. and, and how they work and what they need because everybody's different. Everybody is different mm -hmm. and feedback is so useful. Um, we had a client last year, even two years ago, I think it was last year, who uh, took us up on our request for honest feedback and in addition to giving us a great Zillow and Facebook review, she uh, gave us private feedback and what she said was that she felt like once we were under contract on the property, we disappeared. And although she had bought and sold property before, she really wanted to hear from us more often than the week before closing or just that inspection. And since she gave us that feedback and, and we realized that that was the, the emotional experience of what she had, that was her emotional experience. It's probable that a lot of our clients have that experience. So I feel like we've, we, we are communicating at twice the level now with our clients. Uh, even after they go under contract, we are in touch with them constantly to see what's going on and if they need anything and explain well, here's where we are in the process. And sometimes like this morning when our buyer uh, at, on uh, the house on 42nd Street emailed uh, and said, hey, it's closing week. What, what should I be worried about? I feel a little guilty. I mean, it was seven in the morning or eight in the morning when she sent that email. Like, that's on my list today to talk to her about. So I feel a little guilty that I wasn't you know, I didn't email first or contact her first. But sometimes certain buyers are just on it and they beat you to the punch and it can be refreshing too. True. She's on it. Yeah, they're She's on it. She's a very that's organized awesome. person. Yeah. So on the flip end of that client experience, on the opposite polarity, was a client that had tremendous amounts of trust in us. And um, this is a few years ago when there was lots of inventory on the market and um, they moved here from the East Coast, 
and we helped them find a rental. And then we started looking at properties with them. And what they were looking for was not quite a needle in the haystack, but they had lots of experience with homes before and they were particular about what they wanted. And it took three years for them to find what they really wanted. And in some ways, um, they, we passed on some good homes. But in other ways, uh, it was a lesson in um, business relationships. And I, I feel like they trusted us and wanted us to uh, do good work, but felt confident in that we were doing that. We were approaching our business with integrity and ethics. And so we worked harder because they respected that. And halfway through the process, this client offered to pay the commission up front, which is unheard of. He's the only client that's ever offered to do that. And I refused. I said, this is, at the time, we could have used the money. This was earlier in my business practice, but that's not how this business works. You don't pay the commission up front. Um, and eventually they closed uh, 18 months later. It took a long time, but our, our relationship transitioned into a friendship, and he and his wife remain friends to this day, and, and a business advisor, a trusted advisor in life. Um, so you never know how these things shake out with trust. But one thing is clear. The more trust there is, the more you engender and, and extend trust, which means offering somebody else trust, the, the better the relationship goes. And the more fun you have. Because it, real estate it can be fun. It can be exciting and fun and... When there's trust in place and when you genuinely enjoy being together and spending time with your clients or your friends, it, it changes the whole dynamic of it. And it makes every sort of sour deal or challenging client worth it. Yeah. Especially as, as you learn something from each new relationship. One of the interesting uh, stumbles, or <laughs> stumble isn't the right word, one of the interesting <laughs> steps in the process of buying real estate in Colorado and, and in many states is, uh, are the legal agreements that govern real estate. And the legal agreements are really a formality of what the expectations are, especially in exclusive agency relationships when you're representing a seller or a buyer and they've gotten married to you. The idea uh, on, on one hand is to make sure that representation is clear and you're representing your client to the best of your, in, uh, to your, best of your abilities and in their interest, not yours, or in the opposite party's interests. Um, so that it's critical to do that. But it also, if the relationship isn't ready to go exclusive, then um, dropping that contract on the table and saying, hey, it's time to sign up for the buyer agency creates the opposite of trust. It creates distrust. It makes them feel like you're trying to lock them into something exclusive and they're giving up something by, by signing up with you. And while it's true they're giving up something, the ability to date other people, they're getting your loyalty and hard work in exchange. Like you're now available to continue to work for them because you can't do that with everybody that just wants to shop casually or wants to, yeah, I'd like to sell my house, but I'm not quite serious yet. Find me a buyer. There's a limited amount of resources you can offer those people, but the people that are exclusive, you can offer tremendous amounts of resources and commitment to working on it. So it, it protects the value of the agent's time, but it also clarifies working relationships. Mm -hmm. And it sets a timeline to get this project done which is also a helpful endeavor. But if you drop that contract uh, on the first meeting, on the second meeting, or even any time before that it feels like we've established a good working relationship, it does the opposite, it damages trust. To the point where, I, at least with respect to buyer agency, not listing agreements, but listing agreements for houses, but listing agreements for buyers, the buyer exclusive 
right to buy contract, it may even be worth experimenting going without it. Because I think in some ways, the other point of the contract is to have the conversation. Say, okay, we've been looking for houses for a few weeks. I've taken three or four days of my professional time to show you places. This could be a many-month endeavor, or it could end in 30 days. And at this point, I really need commitment from you that you're working with me. And um, if we have that, do you really need the contract? I mean, I grew up in a time in a small town, much smaller than Boulder, where everybody knew everybody, and I felt like things like that were done on a handshake. And the community enforced trust. But today we, we have lots of legal agreements, some of which are often broken, that are supposed to do the same thing, but they don't. And I have times where I, I wish I would have just taken client's word, you know, for it and and continued the process because they, they clearly weren't comfortable with it for some reason. And uh, yeah, I think we just live in a, an age now where we're very protective over what we give away, but... I, you know, when it feels good and the relationship is aligned and you're checking in regularly, you know, in, in each showing or each meeting or day you you see one another, then hopefully, you know, by the time it is time to, you know, have that conversation and protect your professional time and your needs and, you know, everything that comes along with being exclusive, it's ideally is going to feel awesome for everyone. Mm-hmm. And that makes it worth it. But I think regular check-ins are extremely important. Mm-hmm rather than expecting something from your client from day one or trying to get them into an agency agreement from day one. Mm-hmm. Like I think with, we're just, we live in a very sort of protective time where we want to protect ourselves and our money and our needs and trust is so valuable. And it's not already established like living in a small town where it can be done on a handshake. There are constantly people moving here, people that don't understand the market or people that sort of want as much knowledge as they can have from realtors and sort of take it for granted without, you know, respecting our needs too. So it's important to communicate what you need too as a professional. Mm-hmm. And it's always a learning experience through each deal. Mm-hmm. I mean, there, there are certainly um, agents that deserve the reputation that exists out there. And that reputation isn't always favorable about agents, especially since licensing standards are not super high. It's relatively easy to get a license. Seven, and, and yet there's this paradox where 70% of the deals, the last time I analyzed it, 70% of the deals are done by 30% of the agents. So it's a small number of agents that actually have a significant business practice around real estate in Boulder and in other major cities. Um, and, and creating those trusted relationships with people and knowing what you're getting versus the reputation. It's really the reputation. There's this expectation that you're a, a salesperson... Uh, on a car lot, and that is is actually quite difficult to overcome if you're convinced that's what that's what the business is. Um, but when you know it's a trusted relationship, when you know there's trust in the relationship, it's an entirely different game. A few years ago, I had a deal with um, an agent in town. We'll we'll, we'll get it's a good story, so we'll we'll yeah. share his first name and we'll let you guess his last name. But his first name is Patrick. And the seller was his client and had health issues, and that's why they were selling their dream home and to pay for medical care, which is a sad comment of its own on a reflection on our our country. But uh, we were representing the buyers who were relocating from the Netherlands, 
and our buyers didn't need the house right away. We'd gone through this whole process to select the house. I mean, spreadsheets, narrowing it down from 25 homes to three, flying them. They flew in. They found the, the one, that, the first one, the most likely one was the one they ended up writing an offer on and buying. But the sellers uh, wanted to stay in the house for a period of time afterward, as much as I think it was like three months. And um, during that time, they were paying rent mm -hmm. and um, they wanted us to come collect the rent checks every other week, which we did, and then would run them to the bank and deposit them for our, for our buyers and now, the now owners, this is after closing. And um, we didn't take any additional fees for that. But the, it, it, later, I kind of wondered about it because it was a lot of additional work, not just driving over there and picking a check. Uh, but sitting down with the sellers because there was a lot of emotional stuff going on with them. And Patrick also joined us for several meetings that would go well over an hour to talk about what was going on with them, what their concerns were, um, how to help transition them into the next living situation. Mm -hmm. the, this elderly couple that were selling that had already sold the house. Mm -hmm. And eventually they left. Um, and I think it worked out well for, for them. It certainly worked out well for my buyers. But all of that handholding and all of that time after closing was never in a contract. It was never something that uh, Patrick uh, agreed to do or that we agreed to do in writing. It's just what we did because it was the right thing to do. And based on that relationship with Patrick, years later we had I was in a deal with him and we had a difficult situation arise where his client didn't do what they said they were going to do. In fact, weren't even out of the house the day of closing. They were still wow. moving. It was a shit show. Pardon the language, but wow. it was a complete shit yeah. show. And the hilarity of, I'll never forget the, the seller when we were trying to do our walkthrough. He's like, what? This, is this your first rodeo? He was very kind of rude, <laughs> right? And, I, and he, he completely thought it was normal for the day of closing for them still to be moving and pit, fixing things. It was a complete zoo. Um, so my buyers, uh, they partially moved into the house and gave the guy another 24 or 48 hours to get out. But they, the seller was supposed to have fixed the stove and didn't mm -hmm. and then refused to pay for it. And, um, I, and we had discovered this at closing and, um, uh, afterward, a couple of weeks later, it still wasn't fixed. So I called Patrick and I said, we never wrote this up, Patrick, but it's what we agreed to do. And he reached out to his seller and he said, oh, I'm sorry, Osmond, my seller is behaving badly and not willing to pay for it now. Um, and I said, well, what do you want to do, Patrick? And, and, uh, him and I both wrote checks. I wrote a check because I should have written it into the contract before closing. Yeah. I should have done an amendment. Uh -huh. and put it when put it in escrow we should have put yeah. a couple of thousand bucks in escrow and that so, way the money was there yeah. that's why i wrote a check patrick wrote a check because his seller is behaving badly and he has integrity and he knows it's going to impact every deal going forward mm -hmm. so I, every deal i've ever done with patrick has been a smooth deal when difficult things arise mm -hmm. and that's why if there are two identical offers one is uh, one is from patrick and one is not from patrick i'm always going to favor the patrick offer if i'm the listing agent because i know him He's a trusted entity, and he behaves well. He espouses, I think, the same ethics and integrity we do. And uh, he's, I'd love to have him on the team someday, and I'm sure he'd yeah. love to have us on his team. Right. <laughs> but we're, we'll just keep swirling around each other. He, he, I think I'd like to you know, buy him, buy his business out. I love his approach. Mm -hmm. um, at some point, when he's ready to retire, uh, and help him find an exit by partnering together might be a possibility. I'll explore that with him the next time we, we go out for a beer. I think it all goes back to ethics and integrity at the end of the day, too. And that's why that trust is established, because there are a lot of people with very similar values in this business. And I think when you find each other, it's sort of a, brush of, a breath of fresh air. Um, my grandmother was in real estate as well, and 
I've had the pleasure of doing some deals with uh, people that she worked with back in her day, and that's that's really amazing. Um, I think there's a softness too to some of these these older school agents. You know, it's it's a give or take, but there's they've been through a lot, so. I think they have old school values and ethics. Yeah, exactly. That they they're from another era where the contract was a handshake. Right, and it's only real estate. <laughs> At the end of the day, nobody's dying. Everything's okay. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you hope. Let's find some wood to knock on. No, yep, one, no one dies in a real estate <laughs> transaction. Um, Generally not. Okay, so what else do you want to talk about? <laughs> hmm. Had a very awkward showing the other day. Oh yeah, what did you show? Yeah, I think I. So I'm uh, I'm selling my mom's house, and we went out to look at some comparable properties to finalize pricing. And I would obsessed over the comps all day, so found the three best comps currently in market. And we show up at the door at the first one, and there's a van parked out front, and it looks like the sellers there, and they're unloading stuff. Um, and I, you know, our showing is confirmed four days prior. Confirmed from 12 to 1 in this window, and I go up and I open the sentry lock and I put the key in the door and I knock loudly because I get the sense someone is there. And I start opening the door, and all of a sudden, I look up and there's this man in front of me, the seller, and he doesn't even really acknowledge us or doesn't really say hi, he just begins to say no very forcefully. <laughs> <laughs> and it's like the only man, like, word this known man, this excuse me, only word this guy knows is the word no, because he just continues to say no. I'm like, I have a showing, it's scheduled, it's all approved. And he's like, no, 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 no. I'm like, okay, well, my mom finally goes, like, is, is it okay if we come in and, like, take a look? He's like, we're grungy, we're showering. Like, he's very rude to us. My mom's like, is, does that feel okay to you? And he's like, no, it's, it's absolutely not okay. So I asked him, I'm like, do you want me to call your agent? Or do you want me to call the showing service directly? Um, anyway, it was a very uncomfortable, awkward thing and it seemed that the listing agent had not been doing their job if they needed to block showings or communicate with their seller to let showings happen even if they're in the house but the majority of sellers are, are gracious and even if they're home you know they'll let you come through and they'll stay out of your way but this was a very alarming experience in almost four years I'd never had such a in-your-face intense turndown so we didn't Probably, see the house was he the tenant he was the owner ah. Yeah, that's more standard for, for tenants if, you know, clear communication isn't in place. Or messy tenants is, is one thing, but this was a whole different level of, of alarming. So anyway, we moved on and didn't see that house. So, who knows? Well, I, I think we could. Uh, as you continue to work in this business, you'll have more awkward showings. Always. As long as you feel safe uh, in the showing, that's the most important part. And... You should always trust your intuition. If something doesn't feel safe, just go back to the car and reschedule. Or it's not worth it. Yeah. I, I used to make my ex in the business um, was ask her to. I don't know if she did, but I bought her pepper spray and asked her to carry it. It was a little keychain pepper spray. And I asked her to take self-defense classes as well. She never did the self-defense classes. and I think she kept the pepper spray in her purse, but it made me nervous sending her alone into people's houses to go look at property, especially if she was previewing by herself and not know what's really going on here. Right. Um, I mean, Boulder is a, a pretty safe space. More likely we have awkward showings than right. potentially dangerous showings. I had an awkward showing last week as mm -hmm. well. And I, this is, 
This is, I wouldn't say this is typical, but it's not uncommon in the real estate business in Boulder. We were showing, I was showing a, a, a student rental on the east part of town, and it was a garden level property. I won't share the address because it's an active listing, but you walk in and immediately the first thing you notice is all the deferred maintenance on the outside of the building, which is one of the first things you should be looking for when you're looking at an HOA property. And then we walk in and it, it looks like a hotel hallway and my client comments that it feels like a dorm <laughs> and she's right, it does. And this is, they're not investors. This would be for their personal residence, their first home, their first time home buyers. They want to be in Boulder. And uh, I knock on the doors. I always do for student rentals and I key in. So this is a Saturday at about 1230 last week and the door, I open the door. It's a dark room. And it's sort of the living room, kitchen area. And on the coffee table in front of the couches, the first thing I see is a bong filled with dirty bong water next to an open pizza box and a bunch of tissues scattered around. <laughs> and there's nothing else in the living room. I mean, it's, it's clearly grungy. Um, uh, there's socks and underwear on the floor. And I mean, it just, my client's face was just, uh, just horrified. But she, she uh, quickly responded, you know, the kitchen's not that bad. It actually is kind of nice. And I could tell, like, she's saying one thing, but all of her body language is, get me out of here. But we proceed to continue through the showing and, and start looking around. And it looks like the bathroom's updated. And then we walk over to the bedroom area. It's a two-bedroom apartment. And the first bedroom's open, and it's totally more dirty clothes all over the floor and unmade bed. And then uh, she knocks and opens the second bedroom, which I, sh I could have warned her that that may not be the best move because that door was shut. And sure enough, there's a student um, passed out or half passed out on the bed. And she's like, oh, I'm so sorry. She shuts the door and she looks at me and she's like, he didn't look very good. And maybe I should have told him to drink some water or something. <laughs> and I'm like, do you guys want to leave? That's what I asked him at this point. It was really clear. They, they were feeling a little obliged to complete the showing. And in those types of circumstances, there's no reason to complete the showing. Obviously, the property wasn't going to work for them based on its, uh, the fact that there's high student density and it's a garden level and it felt really dark and foreboding. But this one in particular had all of the emotional energy that was, uh, that was just negative and awful and yucky. And um, we couldn't wait to get out of there. But not the first student I've caught in bed at 1230, Same. waking them up. The psychological and emotional impact is huge. And it's mat, you know, it ties into staging, it ties into how you leave your place for showings, but it's always awkward when a tenant or a seller is there because you, you feel like you can't fully openly discuss the property. Like you have to be conservative or, you know, respectful in a, in a certain way. Well, I actually like it if the tenants are there and not passed out because if the tenants are hanging out, you can ask the tenants questions you, that they'll answer more or less honestly because they're, they're, not, not, the yeah. they're not motivated to sell right. it. And so if there's students or adults hanging out in the apartment or house, I'll ask them, so what's it like to live here? Are there any problems in the house? How's your landlord? And they will happily chat all day long about who their landlord is and what the issues are in the house. Ask, yeah. how's the furnace? Are there any plumbing leaks? Mm -hmm. All of the things the seller would probably prefer we didn't ask the tenant. Right. And the tenant is more than happy to tell us everything. Um, so that's super useful. Not super useful when they're getting high and playing video games, which I've had happen too. We walked yeah. into a student rental. They're all hanging out playing video games, smoking the bowl, and they offered a hit to my client. <laughs> that was a few years ago, and I mean, but we were asking them questions because that's what you do. And then when they started offering us 
a hit. I'm like, oh, no, we have shorties. <laughs> We're never going to leave if we get a hit. We need to go <laughs> right now. <laughs> the way, I guess. Yeah. yeah. That's funny. For the most part, though, most properties are, are staged well. They show well. Um, and if they're not, agents are, are very receptive to, to the feedback. Well, I'm and gonna, that's appreciative. I'm going to disagree with you. And it's okay to disagree. Yeah, of course. Oh, and I encourage you to disagree with me when you disagree <laughs> with me. But I'm going to disagree with you that most properties are staged well. And I'm going to disagree with you that most properties are, are turnkey ready to go condition. And oh, I didn't not, say that. Not exactly <laughs> what you said. But when we, like, most of the properties right. in Boulder, uh, they, the owners have not made a lot of effort to sell them. And they're leaving money on the table when they do that. And they're typically not staged. And it's shocking how often they're not even professionally photographed. So yeah. that's, that, that's the state of the real estate industry in general. And it's also one of the reasons I got into this business is that there's a huge opportunity to do better than the competition. Right. And, um, and there's a lot of opportunity for sellers and boulders to make improvements to their property cosmetically to get them ready. And staging is one of the most important parts. If you have vacant bedrooms, the minimum you should do is put an inflatable bed up. And if you won't do it, we will because we have a bunch and it, because it makes such a difference visually to be able to see the dimensions of a bed in a room. But because if it's empty, even if it's a large bedroom, it feels small. Especially with open floor plans. Like bedrooms are important, but you can normally tell, okay, this is a bedroom. I could put my bed here or here. Whereas if I walk into a house that's just massive where the, or whatever, the open floor plan where the kitchen and dining and living room all flow together and there's no designated anything, it's, it's hard to picture it. Mm-hmm. it takes, no matter how much property you see and it's, it's incredibly hard for buyers to picture it as well where their stuff is going to go it takes cognitive effort to think about how you're going to lay out a room mm-hmm. and if you want a fast high dollar sale if you want to maximize the sale price you want to create the minimum amount of cognitive effort on the part of the buyer yep. and that means they walk in and they see how it's already laid out and it's laid out well and they will casually ignore things like there's not a pantry because they because it's staged and good stagers will see the deficit see the problem like wow this isn't isn't really big for big enough for a dining table they will go get a little bistro table and stick it in the corner and suddenly it looks like it's acceptable so um they will come up with solutions Mm -hmm. to solve issues with your real estate and they're typically worth every dollar Mm -hmm. especially towards the higher end of the market but really at any price point you should have at least some uh, inflatables in the bedrooms yeah, and goes a, long way. A, a couch, a mm-hmm. coffee table, a dining table that works, something that fits the space. Yeah. But if, if possible, the high, the higher end staging is worth it. And even in a lot of high end properties, it's, you get a, like a photo of a, a sink. Like, okay, well, where's this? Where's the single cabinet picture coming from? Like it, there's, there's always room for improvement. Well, the photographs are just designed to get them there. Yep. They are, it's just, it's 100% designed to convince them to schedule a showing. Nobody buys a house without a showing. Or, I mean, that's not entirely true, but it's, it's true enough that it's almost never that you will buy a house without a showing in person. And so, um, once you get them in the door, minimum cognitive effort, no unusual smells, and no, uh, no sense at all, no, um, no uh, incense, no um, Freeze, air fresheners. I can't even say the word because it's yeah. not an air freshener. It's an air stinkifier. Yeah. And they call them air fresheners. But every time we walk in, it smells bad and we know they're hiding something. And it just raises, it comes back to trust again. It raises trust issues when you're running air fresheners. And that can taint the sale from the get-go if there's, there's trust issues. 
Well, and, and a good buyer's agent's going to tell you, we need to look deeper. Why are they running air fresheners? Something isn't right. Yeah. Could be cat piss or something more serious. You never know. It could be uh, must in the basement. It could be cigarette smoke. Um, another common trick is to carpet and paint a smoker's house because the carpet and paint is an odor that um, your brain will register as being fresh paint and carpet, but not masking. And the smoke will come back within a week or two, but that's plenty of time if it's been priced aggressively for sale. And you won't realize you bought a smoker's house until yeah. well after closing. You're like, wow, it smells bad in here. Right. I'm always hesitant when I tour a property that has brand new carpet throughout. Yeah. And so few people like carpet these days anyway. Like, why, why put in the money to get carpet everywhere Yeah. when there's things like luxury vinyl plank out there? Yeah. They're way better and more modern and more durable. It's an indicator to look deeper. Mm-hmm. So while we're on the topic of trust, let's talk about how sellers can engender trust in their potential uh, buyer uh, by being forthcoming and transparent. A few years ago, I was showing property to a uh, physician at BCH, and um, we looked at property all over uh, Boulder County. Actually, he's the only client that ever asked me to give him all the data and plot it on uh, plot a recession uh, regression between two different markets so he could see the difference in price appreciation between Boulder and Louisville for two bedroom condos, mm -hmm. just as a, uh, as a data point for himself to get a sense of how these markets change over time, which was fascinating. I don't think anybody else does that sort of stuff. But we eventually um, zeroed in on the house in Lake Valley. And Lake Valley is that first neighborhood just north of Boulder. It's technically Longmont, but it's closer to Boulder than some Boulder addresses are closer to Boulder like Gun Barrel, for example. And um, this house was beautiful. And the sellers had done a pre-sale inspection and provided it um, right there on the counter for the showing. And we took the time to flip through the report. And uh, my client, my buyer, decided he wanted a house. And when we sat down to write the contract, he said, you know, Osman, I don't think we need to do an inspection. I, I, that inspection is only two years old. It's super thorough. And there's a, a printout that they put together of everything they've done to the house and all the issues they've addressed. It feels great. I think we can skip the inspection. Yes. So we, we still put it in the contract but we, so we could come back and visit and measure and make 100% sure, but we didn't do an actual inspection. And it, it, that's not my advice, by the way. I think you should always do an inspection. Yeah. But he felt confident enough to skip it. And this was a point in time when there was tremendous amounts of inventory on the market, or at least enough compared to today. Mm -hmm. And ever since, I've encouraged my sellers to do an, a pre-sale inspection for exactly that effect because it creates trust and transparency, which increases the sale price and makes the deal go smoother. And even if you're not sure you can trust the buyer, if you behave in ways that are trustworthy, you're more likely to get reciprocation from the other side. And uh, this last listing, we recently had a listing. Um, I guess I really can't talk about the city or the address because it's too small, but it, in this listing, we encouraged the seller to do this, to go ahead and get a pre-sale inspection. And they didn't do it. Um, they felt it was a, it was too expensive, and they also were financially constrained. So um, we got it under contract right away, and buyer number one, who was paying cash and like 25000 over asking, some crazy number over asking, it wasn't quite twenty five, maybe 20 Close, yeah. Um, they did an inspection and found there was dampness in the crawl space, and the dampness was caused by the... Uh, furnace uh, humidifier and they found that the carpets uh, the black light or whatever product that the testing company used showed cat pee on the carpets 
and they asked for an exorbitant amount of money uh, if, that, if we wanted to close. And while I was negotiating that with the sellers, and uh, they terminated without even waiting to see if we'd say yes or no. They just decided they didn't want the house. So I'm not sure if it was because, and actually I'm 100% sure it's, there was a trust breakdown. They felt like that they were issues they just weren't willing to deal with, and our response to their exorbitant demand wasn't what they wanted to hear. Um, but if we had had a pre-sale inspection and found the dampness, the dampness was caused by a leaky humidifier. How easy is that to fix? And we could have easily put down a uh, radon membrane, and we could have easily replaced the carpets at $2.50 a square foot with my carpet person. Mm -hmm. And so it would have cost them far, far less because uh, so buyer number one terminated, it went to buyer number two. Buyer number two extracted a couple thousand bucks out of the, did get a couple thousand bucks uh, out of the sellers um, to replace all the carpets, which was ridiculous because they wrote the offer with the carpets in place. This was a backup yep. contract. It moved to buyer number two. It was also why you should always write backups. But the take home lesson isn't backup contracts, it's, it's go ahead, do the pre sale inspection. You can, you can then fix things. Um, at, by yourself if you want to do it, if you're handy, or you could have a handyman do it, or you could have, you can choose your contractor. Because once the work's done, no one asks if the work was done right. Or, you know, but if you do it in response to an inspection objection, they always think you're cheating them, you're choosing the bad contractor, and it, it's problematic. So the smart money is to, to do the pre-sale inspection and fix things and show them the things you've fixed. Because when you hand the buyer that report, the inspection report, along with the list of things fixed, they think you're a saint. So it's a huge sigh of relief. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so my mom's house, I'm, we're going to list it uh, starting July 7th, and she is going to have a pre-list inspection done next week. And she has been very, very transparent on the seller's property disclosure, um, but plans to have the inspection report during showings and just, you know, have it out there. And also, we've got some pretty serious hail damage. It was really bad in Lafayette, where her house is, last night. Um, and they're going to get the roof inspected in the next couple of days to make sure that the roof looks okay, because it's it's covered by the HOA, but she wants to make sure this, this house is in great shape and everything is super transparent and clear for the new buyer, um, because it ethically feels right, and from the get-go, there's more trust established. And who knows, the buyer may feel comfortable waiving their inspection entirely if there's been an inspection done within two weeks of them writing their offer. It's also harder for them to renegotiate the price if you've disclosed. Exactly. So they can do it. They can still say, hey, you disclosed that um, there's a little water pressure in the house or whatever it happens right. to be, something mm -hmm. trivial. Um, and, but it's, it's, it's very disingenuous for them to say, okay, now we want you to credit us $2,000 of closing when that was in the seller's property disclosure specifically called out. And it's difficult to negotiate on if you're a buyer's agent. You have to, you can do it, but if it's been disclosed from the get-go, it's, it's harder. The seller is much more likely to say no. Exactly. They're, they're, they're likely to say, look, we told you about this already. This is a known issue. Um, it's an issue we've lived with forever or however long. Right. We, we told you we weren't willing to fix those cracked windows. Yeah. And here you are asking for the cracked windows. So the answer is no. Because for us to renegotiate now when we said we wouldn't makes us, it puts us into a place of disingenuous mm -hmm. lack of, in of integrity because now we're going against our word. We said we wouldn't negotiate on this. Right. So the deal is much more, li more likely to break up. Mm -hmm. But yeah, pre-list inspections, very important. Well, and trust, building and trust. trust and engendering trust, behaving in ways that are trustworthy, um, even in a world where people sometimes don't, right. is, is worth doing.
sometimes when I know I've got great clients and um, I'm confident the other side has great people too, um, we do something that we normally don't do and that's allow the buyers and sellers to meet. Mm-hmm. So it's not that common that the buyers will meet the sellers uh, before the, the before the walkthrough or the closing, maybe one in 10 deals. Mm-hmm. But if there's an opportunity, if I know I've got great buyers, for example, mm-hmm. and there's a bidding war about to occur, uh, I, I can't talk to the seller. But if there's an opportunity for my buyer to, to bump into the seller while they're gardening or have a connection with the seller, they should absolutely do that mm-hmm. because of the, of the primary reason is trust. It, it makes okay. you a human being. Um, that's not just an outside investor trying to jump in and get this house. Right. And they're much more likely to take your offer seriously and, and think about its merits and trust that it's real. Because right. the biggest thing that sellers face in this market is somebody throws down a high price for the house and then is disingenuous on inspection or appraisal issues and wants to try to renegotiate and claw back the price. It's a typical game, and it's really a frustrating game for the sellers because now they have value at risk because if they go back to the market, they potentially are giving up thousands, tens of thousands because now they're no longer having that that desirable, coveted, fresh listing thing. Mm -hmm. Now they're in the Nordstrom pick-through. Refresh Refresh. Somebody returned this product to the... To the store, do you want it? It's still great, I promise. It's still in the original wrapping. It's perfect. Right. There's nope. some great deals to be had in that original wrapping sometimes. There are. Yeah. Yeah, and that's a good point, and it's one of the reasons why you shouldn't just chase fresh listings. You should particularly look at listings that are coming back to market because they sometimes can present a compelling opportunity. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And that's why we include those worth a second look listings in our fresh listings some, some weeks. We should do it more often. We should. I, I, it has to be compelling. I, same thing with price reductions. Like if it's like a token five thousand bucks off the price, eh. But last week when the seller on that house on ninth cut the price one hundred fifty thousand, it's like okay, this is ser- that's a serious reduction. Substantial. Started at one point eight. Now we're down to one point five, just below one point five. It's it, it it's on a busy street, but boy, at this dollar price, it's starting to look like a value. And if you're not planning to ever sell it. Um, it could be a killer deal for you to get into this neighborhood, get a house that's that substantial, that has that sort of architectural style and history, that pedigree, mm-hmm. um, and you could be betting on the future being a lot quieter with traffic, with driverless cars, electric cars. Mm-hmm. It, the future is not the past, so the busy street could could be much more tolerable in 10 years. And our busy street is not everyone's busy street <laughs> definition if they're moving from New York City. Sure. The more buyers we have coming from large cities or San Francisco, a lot of people from the Bay are moving to Boulder, Denver area, and their tolerance to traffic noise and just general city noise is so much higher. Yeah. If you're coming from New York or the Bay Area, our busy street is a joke. It's not right. a busy street at all. <laughs> the two-way street with That's a double line is nothing. Yeah. Yeah. It's all relative. Yeah. But we do, I mean, it, I do point it out in those videos and previews. and. Um, it's important. What else should we talk about in the Osman and Sophie show? Do you want to talk about Julie at all? How it's spelled to add a, a new agent? Sure. Why don't you go first? Okay. Um, I guess I was a little hesitant at first um, at the idea of, of having a new agent join us just because we're like a very well-oiled machine. I don't like that phrase necessarily, but a high-functional team. Um, and we have our systems in place to, you know, 
make people happy and, and you know, have our integrity and our values, and they're very aligned. Um, so yeah, I was, I was a little bit nervous adding a, a new agent to the team. Um, but it's been refreshing, honestly, and it's, it's nice to have some new energy in our office. And um, it's, it's sort of nice to be in a place, even though I'm much younger than Julie, to have a, a place where I can be a mentor in certain ways, whether it's parts of the contract or showing property or helping her build her, her socials and her website or whatever that is. Um, it's nice to have that, and it's nice to foster that growth in someone. Um, and she has very similar values, and I think she aligns very well with the House Einstein brand and what we've we've built, what you've built. Well, what we've been yeah. building and, and still <laughs> well, building and growing. Yeah. I, uh -huh. I'm going to give you responsibility for that too. Um, so, adding a third person to the team is a moment of strategic risk. We are now this company is now four years old, five years old, mm -hmm. and Sophie's right, we have, we have great communication, you're right, and we have, we have great systems, there's always room for improvement, we're getting better every year, but we have a good working dynamic, and adding a third person is, is really a question mark, how well is this going to work, mm -hmm. but I've got this vision of having more people in the sandbox, and building something that's greater than the, the proverbial sum of the parts, so the, the tangible benefits are that we have greater reach, greater brand presence, and I think we also have the opportunity to have more fun and do good work. Personally, I also get a lot out of coaching and mentoring both you and Julie and encouraging you guys to build your business and do build it right with integrity and values and skill so that when you're beating your competition, you're beating them on tangible uh, performance metrics, mm -hmm. not just fluff. Mm -hmm. um, and and I, it's it's an honor to have you guys on board, and I'm I'm thrilled and I'm filled with gratitude. I'm thrilled to have you on board, and I'm filled with gratitude to that you guys both are have chosen me and Sophie. You stayed with the company, and this is your four, three, four. You're like you're you're doing great. Um, so uh, it seems like it's the right time. And Julie is uh, is a, a business owner herself. She's not a rookie in life or business, and she has exactly the right attitude and energy and long-term vision for how it, it, how much it will take to build her business. She saw through the smoke and mirrors that she was offered by some of our competitors in this business, some of the other large, some of the large brokerages, and saw through the fakeness of their promises of leads and so forth that, that don't, my experience don't really materialize. Right. And certainly, you, maybe others have better experiences with that, but um, I think you have to build it yourself. You have to build the systems that bring you to leads and you have to serve your, your leads your, who become clients incredibly well so that they send you referrals. Um, so whether the market's up or down or sideways, you continue to have a great book of business and deeper relationships with your clients in the community um, and in, are investing in that community of people buying and selling and doing good work. That and, and th th generates, it has its own momentum. Mm -hmm. So the referrals are a momentum source of leads and then... Um, uh, socials and uh, putting out good information that people are looking for in the real estate world consistently is the other way you build these systems. And mm -hmm. it's been fun coaching and mentoring. It's also uh, encouraging me to get out there and do more video and more podcasting and, mm -hmm. and connecting the community. But always with the in the back of my head, I'm thinking, well, how does this? How is this a valuable conversation? Mm -hmm. How is this a valuable piece of information for our buyers and sellers and general people in the community to learn from? And a big part of our audience, by the way, are other brokers. Yeah. They're 100%. I, I'm running into people that I've never met, 
that are brokers that are on the on the other end of the deal and they're like, wow, well, you know, I've been listening to your blog for a while. It's great to do a deal with you. I'm like, oh, cool. Or I've been reading your blog for a while, not the podcast. The podcast is new, but I've been reading your blog for a while. So, so we'll see. It's an experiment. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think Julie will do great in the long run. And uh, I'm really grateful that you guys get along so well. And yeah. you, you have a lot of value to add, Sophie, to her, given four years of bidding wars and being part of virtually every deal and seeing every contract. That's a, I mean, most agents don't do three or four deals a year, especially when they're starting out. So that's a big benefit. You recently did, you ran the numbers, wasn't it 3.2 or something? Well, I, I, of I stole that from agents? one of our colleagues named Steve who put it in his marketing oh, materials, did? but I know he does his homework on his stats because a few years ago, Steve, he does letters all over town and yeah. you probably can guess who I'm talking about if you're in this business. Um, I got one of his letters this year and it said that the average agent does three and a half deals or 3.2 deals a year, something like that in Boulder. And he did some gazormous number. And I was like, wow, we did a gazormous number too. Maybe not right. quite as many as Steve, but we did a lot of deals last year. And so I was like, huh, we were sort of 10 times the number, 10 times the volume of the average Boulder realtor. So that's pretty darn good. It's pretty cool. Yeah. 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 And Steve, by the way, does, does good work. Um, I recently had a, uh, this past fall, had a listing and they... They wanted, after a few months, it challenged listing, a very busy location. I mean, not next, not 9th Street. We're talking like next to the highway, like right next to the highway. Loud. Loud, parking lot on both sides. And they went with a high price and we blew the summer, which I was afraid of when we went with the high price. But, you know, people make the choices. I advise, they make the decisions. And here we are at the end of the summer, sort of where I expected we'd be. And they said, you know, Osmond, we'd like, we wonder if we could get something from a big brand brokerage. Like maybe it would be helpful to have them market internally or to their international reloads. And I know international reloads are, are smoke and mirrors. I mean, there's, there's our people moving here, but right. they don't dominate that space. And they, like, if you're moving here internationally, would you only look at one brokerage's listings? I mean, come on. But I still wanted them to be happy. And they've done like five deals with me. So I'm like, well, let me refer you to a listing agent that is in that big box, mm-hmm. who I think actually does good work mm-hmm. and sells deals. Like he is by the numbers and he his numbers, now that I've double checked them, I know they're, they're accurate. And he happens to live on your street. Yeah. So he'll take a much more vested interest in your listing. So they did take it, take his list. They did list with him. I let them out of the contract mm-hmm. as a courtesy. And um, it still took him like four months. I don't think we did anything different. It was just timing. Right we just had to wait for the right buyer to come along. But um, I'm still grateful they got it sold and uh, yeah. and uh, that they are happy with how things played out. And I'm sure that I'll be listing and helping them buy property right. in the future. And they're still going to use, yeah. use us because yeah. that loyalty is there. Yeah, absolutely. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay. So um, probably about time we should be thinking about wrapping up this first podcast. And I... I wanted to take a minute to thank anybody that's been listening this far into the podcast. And um, it's, it's an experiment, as I shared in podcast number one, in, in formats and in having long-form conversations about things that matter. And um, I really want to thank Sophie for taking time to come join me for a conversation and help, uh, help uh, elucidate, flesh out some of these topics and, and, um, and have fun with it. Do you have anything you want to add at the end, Sophie? It's good to talk about it in a sort of objective way and sit back and look at look at everything, you know, together. And it's been fun. Mm-hmm. Well, we hope you join us for the next House Einstein podcast. And if you like what you heard, please click subscribe. You're also welcome to email or call us. All of our contact information is 
on our website, but my email address is osman at houseeinstein.com. My cell phone address, uh, cell phone address, my cell, my mobile phone number is 303-746-6896. 303-746-6896. You're certainly welcome to call. And Sophie, you can find her at uh, sophie at houseeinstein.com or reach me by phone at 303-875-3140. That's 303-875-3140. All right. We look forward to catching you next time. And again, if you liked what you heard, please click subscribe and have a great day.